Let's pray as we turn to the Word of God. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this Word. We're thankful that it is living and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. We're thankful that it is breathed out by you. Truly, it is not just the Word of men, but it is the Word of the living God. We pray that as we hear it read this morning and that as we hear it preached, that we would treat it as the living word that it is. We would not shrink back from hearing it, that we would not close our ears. We would not make our hearts hard against your truth. That you would bow us low underneath your holy word and that you would instruct us. Teach us your ways, that we might delight in you, and that we might serve you more readily. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Jonah chapter 3, this is the holy and errant word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's getting louder. Not sure what it is. If it's a UFO and I see it outside, I'll let you know. It sounds like they're beaming us up. I wonder what it is that you look forward to, what it is that uh, you hope to to see in this life before you depart to be with the Lord. There are different things that I hope to see if the Lord tarries and doesn't take me home uh, quickly. I want to see my children get married. If they get married, I want to see my grandchildren if I 
might have grandchildren. But what I want to see more than anything else, if the Lord should tarry or keep me alive, what I want to see before I see Him is I want to see a mighty movement of God. I would love to see an awakening where God pours out His Spirit in a very distinct and powerful and demonstrative way, and He leads many to saving faith. We haven't seen that in our land for quite some time. If you study church history, you'll notice that there is no straight line of progress in church history. It's not like a, a bull market in the stock market where it's continually going up. No, the, the church in one generation will, will tend to increase in numbers and have zeal and have passion for the Lord and will be busy about the Lord's business and then Possibly in the next generation you see that they are more lax and they're dry and they tend to be cold and then it goes down and it goes up and in the next generation. But there are some times that God's Spirit blesses in an extraordinary way and there is a monumental growth and vitality in the church. And in our land, we haven't seen that for a very long time. I say that not to complain, because we should never complain about God's work uh, in our generation, and we shouldn't be uh, looking back to some previous generation and jealous of what happened there or what is happening somewhere else in the world, like in China or in South America right now. There's danger in that, but there's even more danger. And not looking back to what God has done. And not recognizing what He has done. And hoping that He would do it in the present. I believe Jonah is in the Bible for this very reason. There are surely a number of reasons that it is here in the Scriptures. But one of them, surely, is to teach us about what God has done in the past. So that we might rejoice in what He's done and so that we might look forward and hope to Him doing that same kind of work in our time and in our generation. When I think upon this, I think about Psalm 78, and there Asaph will recount all of these great workings that God has done in history for the nation of Israel. And he says that he is recounting all of this because he doesn't want the present generation to forsake God as their fathers had done. Asaph recognizes that knowledge of God's mighty work in the past helps to awaken us in the present. And so he tells story after story of what God has done in history. In the book of Judges, we see what happens when the stories of God's mighty working are unknown. After Joshua has led the people into the land and after they have done battle with the people that are in the land and Joshua dies, we are told, and all that generation also gathered to their fathers... And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They didn't know God. And they didn't know his mighty works. And everyone began to do what was right in their own eyes. Ignorance of the past working of God breeds unbelief in the present. And so here we have in Jonah this, this amazing testimony. God working mightily and 
powerfully, unbelievably, in this wretchedly wicked city of Nineveh. And it's told here so that generation after generation of Christians might read it and and generation after them might read it so that we might know what God has done in the past, that we might be thankful for that and that we might hope that it would be done in the present and, and in the future. And to be shaped by it and to long for it. So we're given this testimony of God's working and awakening in Nineveh. And the elements in it that we see of this awakening, how God accomplishes this awakening, it's a common pattern, I think, throughout church history of how God works an awakening in a land and how He brings a, a mass amount of people to saving faith. So I want to look at that this morning. At the end of chapter 2, Jonah is spewed out onto dry land after he has emerged from this whale. And chapter 3 begins with, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so off Jonah goes. He, he goes to that great city of Nineveh. It is a great city in size, it's a great city in population, it's a great city in wickedness. And he is sent there to, to preach and to proclaim. Go to that wicked city and call out to them, God said. And of course, Jonah has heard this before, he heard this in chapter 1, and there when God called him and sent him to go to Nineveh to preach, he wanted nothing to do with it. He ran away. God wouldn't let him run away. He chases him down and he chases him onto that ship and causes a storm. And eventually Jonah is thrown overboard and he is swallowed by this giant fish or whale. And there in the stomach of that fish for three days, something happens to Jonah. He's changed. He experiences revival, transformation. This disobedient prophet looks to the Lord in faith, and he looks to the Lord in repentance. He is changed, and he commits himself to the Lord again and afresh. And so it's now this transformed Jonah, a, a changed Jonah, that goes and preaches to these Ninevites with the hope that they also will change. We're told in verse 3 that it's a three-day walk around the city because the city was so great in size. He goes there. Now, historians will at times have criticized the Bible here and said this just cannot be true. Archaeological evidence where the city of Nineveh was, it is not, it, they can tell where the walls of the city were and it wasn't big enough that it would take someone three days to walk all around the city. Okay. But surely Nineveh, being a capital city like this and a great city, it surely had people that were camped outside of the city and houses arose outside of those walls, much like our modern day suburbs. And no doubt those people referred to those little villages that were attached outside the walls as Nineveh, just like we today speak about being here in Lansing. But we're not in Lansing. We're in East Lansing. You may be in Hazlitt, or you may be in Grand Ledge, or you may be in that vacation destination of Holt, Michigan. 
It's Lansing. We all refer to it as Lansing. So Nineveh, as a great city, took three days to walk through, but, but Jonah just goes into the city for one day, and as he is there for one day, he calls out, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And we're told in verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. There's a change. The unbelievable work of the Holy Spirit as Jonah preaches, the Spirit falls upon these people and they believed in God. And they repented. And they come, came running to the Lord in faith. A, a whole city. A giant city. An awakening or what we might call a reformation. It's the entire city of Nineveh. This may be the single greatest awakening in the history of the world. Right here in the book of Jonah. And it's here that you and I might know how mightily God can work by His grace and what He has done in the past. And yet, as I've read about different awakenings throughout church history, it's one of my favorite things to read about. There's a common pattern that marks all of them. And it's here in this awakening that happens here in chapter 3. So let's take a look. Notice first, this awakening or reformation begins with God causing a revival in the church. Awakening or reformation in the land begins with God causing revival in the church. That's our first point. Here's a member of the church, Jonah. And maybe in other awakenings, the revival may start in a handful of people, but here there is one person. Chapter 2 of Jonah precedes chapter 3. Jonah wanted nothing to do with preaching to these Ninevites. He didn't want to go to those wicked people and evangelize them, and so he runs the other way, but God. But God takes this hard-hearted lukewarm, callous, flailing disciple, and he makes him white hot for himself. He changes him. Jonah experiences revival. His joy in the Lord is palpable in chapter 2 and how it ends. He says in verse 8, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That is, why would you go traipsing after any other idol? It's only in God, only in the Lord, Yahweh, that you find this steadfast love that does not depart, that does not leave you, that does not forsake you. He says, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. And then he just kind of erupts, doesn't he? Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's revived. This cold, hard-hearted, fleeing, flailing disciple is revived with passion and, and white-hot love for the Lord. It has just revived Jonah with a renewed love and 
renewed zeal for God that God uses mightily in Nineveh. This, this is how awakenings or reformations always begin. God begins with his people. Awakenings begin with God causing a revival in the church. It's needed. Because the church has grown drowsy and its people have fallen asleep and, and they usually don't even recognize it. There's very little zeal. and There's very little focus on Christ. But then God does a mighty work. And He pours out His Spirit upon them and He works in them by His sovereign power and He awakens His people from their sleep. That captain said to Jonah when he was in the boat, he said, Awake, you sleeper. Jonah wasn't just asleep physically, he was asleep spiritually. And in the belly of that fish, he, he is woken up. And so it happens throughout history. That a person or a group of people or a, a church woken up and it becomes the very instrument that the Lord uses to cause an avalanche of spiritual awakening in the culture around them. The Protestant Reformation began this way. Martin Luther is convicted of his sin and then he sees the grace of God in a whole new light and understanding and he teaches that to his students, and from him and his students, it spreads out and it impacts an entire continent. And it changes the European landscape. It changes churches, and governments, and art, and music, and culture. Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, they preach to church people, and they are revived. That spiritual vigor spreads, and it impacts all the American colonies. Or you think about Josiah, he, he finds that scroll, the, the Word of God, and he reads it. It has been lost for a generation, and he reads the law of God, and he is convicted by it, and he is led unto the Lord in a new kind of faith and repentance, and so he reads it to the people. And there's an awakening among the people. Where Peter and the apostles are transform with zeal and they go and preach the risen Christ and they're at Pentecost and awakening occurs and, and follows and Luke tells us that the Lord added to them day by day those who were being saved. Or here, the revival in Jonah ends with an awakening in Nineveh. An entire city. A grand city great city is converted. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. All of them. Can you imagine that? And this quickly leads to our second point. Common pattern of God's working and awakening is that God works through changed people to change people. This is always the pattern of reformation or awakening. Jonah emerges from the belly of this whale and he goes out to preach repentance and faith as he has 
come to the Lord in repentance and faith. Peter is restored by the Lord Jesus, and, and he repents, and, and he expresses faith, and he goes out to preach repentance and faith. Saul is struck blind on the Damascus road, and he is led unto the Lord in faith and repentance, and so he goes out and he preaches repentance and faith. God uses changed people to change people. Now, God doesn't need people. He could do it without using anybody, couldn't he? But he chooses not to. He chooses the means of, of calling people to himself and working in them and then sending them out to work of salvation for others. He called Jonah. He, he called Jonah and he revived Jonah so that Jonah might actually be of use. And he sends him out as a herald to these Ninevites to declare not just what Jonah knows with his mind, but what he has experienced. Repentance and faith. Jonah isn't a mere academic. Paul isn't a philosopher. Peter isn't an ivory tower thinker. They have all been changed by the grace of God, been led to faith and repentance, and now they are sent out to preach that faith and repentance. Some Christians have questioned through the ages that but if God is sovereign, then, then why is there any need for you and I to evangelize? It seems like we could save ourselves a lot of embarrassment without sharing the faith with other people. If the Lord wants to save people, He can do it Himself. There's that famous account in church history where William Carey, that Wonderful Baptist missionary who started the modern missions movement when he went to his church's diaconate and told them about his dream to go to India and to share the gospel with the people in India. That a deacon stood up and he said to him, young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. That deacon didn't know his business. That's just plain wrong. God chooses to use changed people to change people. He sends out his church into the world to share the good news of the gospel. And he works through them, through us. Was Jonah telling them? Well, verse 2, God said to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against it the message I tell you. And this is our third point. The third common pattern of all awakenings is that God works by His means of grace. He, he sends out His people, but He sends out His people to proclaim the truth of His Word. And they are to always bathe it in prayer. His word and prayer. God said, proclaim the message I give to you. Jonah doesn't just move to Nineveh and start treating people nicely and hope that they will notice. He doesn't start some cultural project, some community project. He, he doesn't employ some kind of 
clever arguments or humor or employ likability or creative new techniques. He simply tells the people of Nineveh what God has said. He delivers the word. He lets God do the work. God works through changed people to change people by His Word. That, that's the means of every awakening. His Word. His ordinary means of grace. The Word preached as we bathe it in prayer. I think there in verse 4 we, we have a summary. I think it's just a summary of that Word that Jonah was probably proclaiming. It says, yet 40 days and none of us shall be overthrown. I think three or four of you have mentioned to me this week that Jonah being in the belly of that fish for three days and all that stomach acid, he probably came out just white and bleached. And uh, could it be that he just looked like a zombie walking around people and saying destruction's coming? And so there's a quick response. Could be. But I don't think that's it. He's just declaring the word of the Lord. God works according to his word. We trust that. We believe that. Because we've seen that. And you've experienced that if you're a Christian. This isn't eloquent what he says. It's just clear. It's just a focused proclamation. And notice that the people did not respond to Jonah, that they responded to God. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They knew who they were hearing. They weren't responding to Jonah. They knew that he was speaking on behalf of God. That it was God's word. And we're trusting in the preacher. Trusting in the one that the preacher pointed to. And that's what we do. We preach and we teach and we share and we evangelize with the word of God. Because it points to God. The English reformers, they understood this. The, the slogan of the English Reformation that they printed on flyers and they put on bulletins and they painted on signs was this. They said... Pray for reformation by the power of the word preached. What's the slogan during the English Reformation? John Wesley, the great first great awakening preacher, said that he was a man of one book. And he said that he and his helpers were resolved, quote, to preach with all their might, plain old Bible Christianity, and to follow no other rule, whether of faith or practice, than the Holy Scripture. George Whitfield, the greatest evangelist in the history of the church outside of, of Jonah, said this. He said that they would spend whole nights in prayer and that he always preached the word. The, the word preached and God's people bathing that preached word and prayer are the means that God uses to cause every awakening. And our final point before a few applications. When God works in awakening, He works faith and repentance. 
Awakening occurs as scores of people are brought under the, the burden of the guilt of their sin. What you see in this passage where they are putting on sackcloth and ashes, even the king will step down off of his throne and take off his robe and he will sit in ashes and put them on his head because there is such a weight of the conviction of the guilt of their sin. And then they know there's nowhere else to look. So they just look to the living God in faith. Faith and repentance is always the result of awakening. They believed in God, Jonah tells us. They believed in God. Even the powerful brought low. Entire city's population. Entire cities struck with a sense of its wickedness. That blood was on their hands. They were alienated from God and, and that destruction awaited them. And God's justice and judgment was coming. So they do the only thing they do. They, they just call out to God in faith. I long to see that. Do you? Especially over these past weeks, I've longed to see it even more. I was thinking this week while I was preparing uh, this sermon, I was thinking, you know, I've read the account of Jonah many times. And it's easy to read about that wicked city of Nineveh and your mind starts racing and you start thinking of modern day cities and you think of Baghdad and you think of Kabul and maybe you think of New York City and Las Vegas and we just quickly excuse ourselves. Not this week. Oh, clearly... They're wicked as well. Lansing. Holt, Michigan, for goodness sakes, of all places. Read this passage in a whole new light this week, don't we? But there's hope. These Ninevites, they mightily call out to this mighty God, every single one of them, all of them. A, a wicked city is converted. God said that he was going to destroy this wicked city in 40 days. He had promised it, but now it's no longer a wicked city. It's a city that's filled with righteousness and holiness and faith. It's a different city. It's a changed city, and so he relents. How long to see that in our city? How we should long to see that happen in our land again. That's our longing. Then let me give you a few quick applications. If we would see an awakening in our land, we must first tend to our own hearts. Because you see, awakening begins here. It is far too easy for us to say, yes. Revival must begin in the church. For an awakening to happen, the church must be revived. And so we start looking at that church on that corner, and that corner, and we say, Lord, revive that church. 
Revive those people. We excuse ourselves. It's too easy to use the church as a whipping boy and excuse ourselves. It could be that the Lord wants to do an awakening in Lansing, and if he does, it will begin with a revival in our own lives. F.B. Meyer prayed, he said, Lord Jesus, do in me what you need to do so that you can do through me what you want to do. That should be the cry of every Christian. It should be the cry of every church-going person. Lord, revive me. Stir my heart and my soul. Give me that singular pursuit of Christ where He occupies my mind and my heart and my soul, where I just want to hear of Him. You can't get enough preaching. You can't pray long enough. You, you, you hate trivial conversation. You just want to be with God's people and converse about the things of God. Because that's what occurs in revival. See it over and over in church history. During the Welsh revivals, they had a slogan, and it was this. It was, bend the church and save the people. Isn't that beautiful? Bend the church and save the people. Bend us, Lord. We're in need. The church in our day, it is lukewarm, my friend. You don't have to read much church history to see that we are lukewarm. Our faith is very small. Our effort is very lackluster. Our prayers are very feeble. Let me read you just an example of what it looks like. I don't usually read like this, but I want to read this for you because I think None, well, I know none of us have ever experienced an awakening. And my guess is that very few of you have ever read of one. I want to read this to you from the 20th century, from the early, from the middle of the 1900s in Scotland. There was a great awakening in the Isle of Lewis. And Duncan Campbell wrote of it, and I just want to read to you what they experienced there. He said, they arranged for me to address the church at a short meeting, meeting beginning at 9 o'clock that night. It was a remarkable meeting. God sovereignly moved and there was an awareness of God which was wonderful. The meeting lasted until 4 o'clock in the morning. And I had not witnessed anything to compare with it at any other time during my ministry. Around midnight, a group of young people left a dance and crowded into the church. There were, peop there were people who couldn't go to sleep because they were so gripped by God. Although there was an awareness of God and a spirit of conviction at the initial meeting, the real breakthrough came a few days later on Sunday night in the parish church. Men and women were crying out to God for mercy all over the church. There was no appeal made whatsoever or needed. 
After meeting for over three hours, I pronounced the benediction and told the people to go out, but mentioned that any who wanted to continue the meeting could come back later. A young deacon came to me and said, Mr. Campbell, God is hovering over us. About that time, the clerk of the session asked me to come to the back door. There was a crowd of at least 600 people gathered in the yard outside the church. Someone gave out Psalm 102, and the crowd streamed back into the church, which could no longer hold the number of people. A young school teacher came down front crying out, Oh, God, is there nothing left for me? She's a missionary in Nigeria today. There was a busload of people coming to the meeting from 60 miles away. The power of God came into the bus so that some could not even enter the church when the bus arrived. People were swooning all over the church. And I cannot remember one single person who was moved on by God that night who was not gloriously born again. When I went out of the church at 4 o'clock in the morning, there were a great number of people praying alongside the road. In addition to the school teachers, several of them, these born again that night, are in foreign mission work today. From there, the move of God spread to the neighboring districts. I received a message that a nearby church was crowded at one o'clock in the morning and wanted me to come. When I arrived, the church was full and there were crowds outside. Coming out of the church, two hours later, I found a group of 300 people unable to get into the church praying in a nearby field. And then he ends the account by saying that one old woman complained about the noise of the meetings because she could not go to sleep. Father, there might be such a work of God among us that our neighbors can't even go to sleep. We could see an awakening in our land. We must first tend to our own hearts. It always begins in the church. Next, if we would see an awakening in our land, we must be people of the word and be faithful to what we have been called to do. We must have knowledge of the word, which means that you must read the word, which means that you must meditate upon the word, which means you must memorize the word so that you can share the word with others. And don't be ashamed of it. It's a power of God unto salvation. We must be faithful to what we have been called to do. We've all been called to be evangelists. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Notice that Jonah was called to be an evangelist. He wasn't called to be a revivalist. He was just called to go and simply share the word. That's it. And he leaves the fruit to God. Listen, I know that can be intimidating. There's nothing that most of us feel more guilty about than our lack of evangelism. You say, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know that I have the knowledge. That's just not true. That's just not true. That is a lie from our adversary. It's one of the great lies that many of us grab a hold of. You and I don't need more knowledge to share. What we need is more boldness and faith. 
My friends, if we know Christ, we know enough to share. If we know Christ, we know enough to share. Do you know of his birth? Do you know of his life? Do you know of his death? Do you know of his burial? Do you know of his resurrection? Do you know of his ascension to the right hand of God? Do you know that he's fully God? Do you know that he's fully man? Do you know that there can be, therefore, no other Savior? Do you know enough to share? Do you know enough? We're so often concerned about what we're going to say and how we're to say it that we never say anything. As if someone's conversion depended upon us. If we don't just get it exactly right, if we don't have the right argument, if we don't have the right words, then, then we're just going to mess up the whole thing. My friends, this is part of the beauty of the, of the book of Jonah. I almost called the gospel of Jonah, which it is. It's a sovereign God that saves. Sovereign God. It's he that does the work. So you and I, all we need to do is just share his word and allow him to work. That's it. He does the work. He saves. You know, it can be a sentence of testimony. It can just be a few words of his truth, and he can work mightily. One of the greatest preachers in the history of the church was brought to saving faith by just simple words. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, as a small boy, he attended a primitive Methodist church. And he sat in that church, and on that morning, that pulpit was filled by a man that he said had no education and could barely read and could barely write. And that preacher got up to preach, and Spurgeon said, the man preached on the text, look unto me and be ye saved. And Spurgeon says that the man just stuck to the same phrase for the whole sermon, which lasted all of ten minutes. It's a preacher you would like. Ten minutes. But Spurgeon said he only spoke for ten minutes because he didn't have anything else to say. He couldn't think of anything more to say. So he just preached for ten minutes. And at the end of those ten minutes, he noticed Spurgeon, this young boy sitting in the church, and he said this to him. He said, young man, you look very miserable. And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. And Spurgeon says in that moment, he was converted. Look, look, look. Not much of a sermon. He's got three points, but it's the same point. <laughs> it wasn't one of the greatest sermons in the history of the church, and yet these very simple, straightforward, clear words led to the salvation of one of the greatest preachers the church has ever seen. You don't have to be eloquent. Moses was not a good speaker, and God used him. People mocked the Apostle Paul and said he did not speak with power. He did not have any kind of 
bodily presence when he was with them. They said, oh, your letters are much stronger, Paul. God mightily uses them. Our eloquence or power in speaking is no increased advantage for the spirit who has already chosen to work. And neither is our lack of eloquence a hindrance when he has chosen to work. Because it's his work. We just got to be faithful. Just faithful in what he's given us to do. Just share his word. That's simple. If you only have one talent, don't you dare bury it. Use it. And that leads to this. If we would see an awakening in our land, we must be zealous for God's glory in Christ's name. Where is our zeal? Where is our zeal for extending God's glory in Christ's name throughout this world? Where is it? Many of us, if we lived at the time of the disciples and the time of Christ, we would have looked at them and we would have accused them of being overzealous. We would accuse them of being radicals. We're much more refined. No, we're much more dead. When you look through church history, it is almost always the case that those who are most used by the Lord were the most radical in the eyes of those around them. Zeal for the Lord is maybe the greatest fruit of revival and the greatest tool for causing an awakening. So you never allow yourself to think. You never allow yourself to think that you, say, you can say too much about Christ. Or that you can point to him too often. Or that you can serve him too greatly. Don't you excuse yourself or allow yourself to think that you are turning people away from Christ by talking too much of him. As if you are doing them a service by remaining silent. We could somehow magnify him by keeping him shrouded from others. As if others not knowing our allegiance to Christ will somehow bring them in the fold. No, we need more zeal, not less. I say that to myself as much as I say it to you. Oh, I thought I would be more zealous for Christ's glory. We have need to repent of our own sluggishness as Jonah did. Our own cold-heartedness. Our own running from the Lord. We often show more remorse for a lost dog than a lost person. Listen, I think I have a hard heart. I'm all for lost dogs. Let's find him. I also say this I'd rather every dog in the world be lost than one person be lost unto God. We're often moved to more tears that somebody is physically dying than the fact that our neighbor is spiritually dying and dead. Penn and Teller, uh, the, the uh, magicians, comedic group, 
They have a show in Vegas. Uh, Penn Gillette is an outspoken atheist. Uh, he is constantly railing against the Christian faith, especially. I remember watching this years ago, and I went back to it this week to watch it again. You can look it up on YouTube. Where he tells this story about after he finished a show and he went out after the show, he said as they normally do, to sign autographs. And he watched as this big man stood in the corner and just kind of waited as the, the crowd got their autographs and, and quickly dispersed. And, and this big man continued to stand in the corner. And Penn says he was just watching him, watching to see what this was about. And then the man came up to him, and after everybody had parted, and the man said, I was here at the show that you did last night. He said, oh, it was so incredibly good, and, and you guys just do a wonderful, a wonderful job. And Penn said the man was incredibly complimentary. It was very encouraging. And then he said the man walked, gave, uh, lifted up his hand, and he handed it to Penn, and he said, I brought this for you. Wajo, you'll appreciate this. Just saw you. It was a Gideon Bible. New Testament and the Psalms. Quadjo, our resident Gideon. And he said, I wrote in the front of it and wanted you to have this. I'm a businessman. He said, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And Penn said it was really wonderful. He said, I believe he knew I was an atheist, but he was not defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. He was truly complimentary. When everyone else was gone, this man gave me a Bible, an outspoken atheist. He said, I admired that man. And then he said these words. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell, and you think it isn't really worth telling this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? An atheist saying that. How much do you have to hate people to believe in everlasting life and not tell them about it? He cared enough about me to proselytize and share a Bible with me. That was a good man that gave me that book. Atheist. This man lived with zeal. This atheist took recognition. Finally, if we would see an awakening in our land, we must believe in faith and pray that God will do it. Do you believe that God can do a work in our midst? Do you believe that he could convert this entire city as he converted the city of Nineveh? Do you believe that? You should. We must. That's one of the reasons the story is here. I was thinking this morning, driving in as easy as it is for God to clothe this ground with snow this morning, so it is easy for him to clothe this land with his spirit and make it white and afresh and anew. He can do it. Do you believe it?
He's done it in congregations and begun it with congregations smaller than ours. He's begun awakenings that have shaped an entire continent with cities smaller than ours. And you know, he's often used students, which is fascinating. He's often used students. And you know what else he's often used? Some tragedy. Some awful heinous thing in that community to bring it low. That's how Edward says the first great awakening began in Northampton. It may be so here. Would you join with me in praying for it in faith? Would you join me in that? You know, tonight we're gathering back together again. You got nothing else to do tonight. We're gathering back together again to pray for our community. Would you come and pray? Would you pray in faith over the next days and weeks and months and years regularly that God would do an awakening in our land? Would you pray for that? And do more than pray for it. You labor for it. You seek after it. We have Christ. And he is so precious. I want everyone else to have Christ. Because what do they have if they don't have Christ? Be bold in our prayers and let's believe and let's labor. We might see an awakening in our generation. It's time. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are thankful that you are a God who works mightily. And oh, we are thankful for the privilege and the honor that we have. Be instruments in your hand to accomplish your purpose and your will in this earth. Lord, would you do a mighty work in our land? As our community has been brought low after these last weeks, may it just be the beginning. The beginning of the mighty work that you plan to do in our midst just to bring a few people to saving faith, not dozens, not even hundreds, but thousands and tens of thousands here in the Lansing area to saving faith. And Lord, we would pray in faith that it would not just be here, but that it would spread through this state and spread through this country and through this continent and around the world. We believe you are able. We know you are able. We pray it in faith. In Christ's name, amen.